This man is a ruthless adventurer and a con artist. How's that supposed to make me feel? From Wes Anderson comes a story of war and peace. Well, hello there, chaps. Love and death. She's been murdered, and you think I did it. Shocks, scrapes, great escapes. I can barely steer. And room service. She was dynamite in the sack. She was 84. Mm, I've had older. The Grand Budapest Hotel. Rated R. Now playing. Welcome back, folks, to Whose Filmography Is It Anyway, where the points don't matter, but the hotels do. Uh, this week, we dove into the greatest and grandest of all grand hotels. That's right. It's the Grand Budapest Hotel. As always, I'm your co-host, Josh Page, and with me, as always, my co-host and friend, Steve Molina. Hello, hello, everyone. We made it. We climbed we up it. that mountain to that hotel. We climbed way up that mountain, and I felt like I can hear the yodel style singing as i was making my way up that hill like i was a paper mache character in a paper mache world filled with rich pink colors that would be cool you know some amusement i i could imagine like uh wes anderson amusement park just i guess it would be an amusement park it'd be more of a like uh i don't know walking museum but it would be great for your instagram hey don't tempt me with a good time <laughs> So uh yes we got into Grand Budapest Hotel where we will taking where we will be taking a deep dive so this is an official spoiler warning not that we've ever done that before I'd like to assume that I've actually considered we should probably start doing that So I uh was describing this could be off the I don't this could be off the books it doesn't matter but it's I was talking to Robin earlier and she was um she was like so what's your what's your appeal like who what's, who's your audience I'm like I don't know people who love movies like us and she's like all right so what do you do a breakdown of each each film? I'm like, yeah, we just, you go into all of it. I'm like, yeah, all of it. She's like, so you spoil everything. I'm like, yeah. She's like, do you tell, give them a spoiler warning? I'm like, well, no, not really. I just assume that they know, but. If you're I, clicking on an hour and a half episode of The Dark Knight, you should assume we're talking about the deep and sweaty lore of The Dark Knight. I like to imagine it's like, yes. And then, you know, uh, Bruce got the phone call, you know, about uh, Rachel in one uh, warehouse and, or so one character in one warehouse and one character in another warehouse, but uh, you know they're pinned against each other. And then there's an explosion, but maybe, but not really. And one of them may or may not die. We can't spoil it though. It's all <laughs> speculatory. It's really something. But yes, um, a spoilerific dive episode into episode of Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. Here, this so is tell me this Josh. is. Well, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I totally cut you off. I was going to say, I feel like we've been building to this and I want to, we always, we, we have a bad habit of kind of saying uh, final, leaking final thoughts before they happen, but this has felt like good progression, but um, you want me to tell you something. Uh, I was just going to ask what the first time you watched this movie was. This is actually the first uh, film that breaks my normal routine of stories where most of my first times, most of my West cherries were, were popped in very, very quietly in dark rooms, again, with headphones, very intimate. But um, I actually- Very special. Uh, you're very special. So I had a friend- well, Congratulations. I had a friend, it was many moons ago. So I had a friend in the past who had reached out to me. Okay. And yes. he had said, my friend had said, hey, Wes Anderson is coming out with a new movie. And I'm like, cool beans, man. 
and he was like, we should go see it. Now, this is 2014. Pre-movie pass for me, at least. I don't know if movie pass. Pre-movie pass for everyone, I think. That was before movie pass existed. I like to believe movie pass secretly existed for like 10 years before, you know, 2017 and everyone jumped on the bandwagon. It definitely but. existed before people caught on because I had it when it was $50 a month. And that was like for a good year before it went down to like $9.99 and then it destroyed it itself. But then when I or, or when I got when I got the discount package for six ninety nine a month, which is basically like it's free at that point. But we Jesus. get we movie pass seems to you know movie pass is a thing that we will be telling children of the great grand era ahead, and we'll say yes, there was a time where movies were basically free in the things called movie theaters, which are were a thing before COVID nineteen hit, and that's a discussion I'm not ready to have. But um, <laughs> to veer off from the depression. The future depression, of course, because we're going to hit it soon. But um, So it's 2014, my friend said, a new Wes Anderson movie was coming out. We should go see it. And I'm like, cool. And like many movies, especially uh, ones with bigger names, um, they'll get a limited release first. Um, I During the movie pass days, I would see a lot of films in the city. I had the luxury of uh, working with you in Manhattan where I could just go downtown or uptown and see movies that would not hit theaters on Long Island for sometimes a few weeks or even a month or so later. And so there was a limited screening um, over the weekend, for of the weekend it had come out. And we drove out to Port Washington, Long Island, because it was one of like a couple theaters, I don't know if Huntington was another, that was playing this movie. And we drove out there, we got tickets early and we went and it was one of those, uh, I can't explain it. It's one of those like old style theaters. Like it actually looked like a theater where you'd go see a play. Like it was very, it was small. Um, it was a cool theater, had little um, like light bulbs down the aisles as you walked down. Like it was really cool. Was like, I love that. That's like, I don't know, it puts you in the experience. It's yeah, an immersive experience. And that's like perfect for this kind of movie. I re- and it's funny, I was just going to say, it, it set me up for an experience that I almost feel like I would not quite have felt otherwise because this is an incredibly impactful movie in its own right. But like in this old school style theater and to sit there with my friend and myself and there was almost no one else in the theater. Um, we saw a preview for, just to set the, the time frame. we saw a preview for Under the Skin and the early reviews were was like hailing it as like a work that okay. feels feels like the next Kubrick. And my friend, I remember him very specifically nudging me. He's like, he's like, that's a bold line. He's like, how? He's like, that's a bold statement. How could you say that? You know, because there was all this very vague, cryptic trailer for Under the Skin um, with Scarlett Johansson as an alien. It's going to factor into my story as well. Go on. That's, that's really funny. Anyway, I could feel myself getting off track. So anyway, watch this movie. And it, because of the, the buildup, driving out to the theater, having this little romantic experience with my man friend, you know. <laughs> So we had this experience, and I'll tell you my thoughts, obviously, as we get into this, but that was that. Was that. I'll never forget that experience, because that's one of the only, nope, it is the only theatrical Wes, Wes Anderson experience I've had that is that memorable. What's funny is, I didn't, I didn't even know you are going to mention Under the Skin, but what happened with me was I actually went with um, two friends to see Under the Skin. And I walked out of that movie mesmerized and I <laughs> loved every second of it. My two friends were like, Steven, what the fuck did you bring us to? <laughs> like, 
I thought that movie would never fucking end. And I had to like literally explain to them the, like I sat there just like rambling about my initial <laughs> thoughts for like a good hour. Yeah. Cut to like two to three weeks later and Grand Budapest Hotel came out in theaters. Cause I saw Under the Skin early cause I, I lived in Manhattan where it came out early. That's really and funny. A couple weeks later, Grand Budapest Hotel comes out and I text my friends, like, do you want to go? And they're like, fuck no, we're never taking another was like, recommendation. Yeah, one of them was again. literally like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> I- I'm not doing this shit ever again. And one of them was like, I'll go because I don't want you to go alone. But I was like, I don't mind going alone. Like, if you don't want to go. He, and he watched the trailer and he was like, all right, it's not under the skin, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, okay, I'll go. But I was on very thin ice. That's... And he walked out going, he walked out loving the movie as much as I did. Not yeah. to spoil. Feelings, no, no, no. You can't spoil like, final thoughts, but yes. But. Uh, it's that's funny that. It was uh, just very funny because I was on such thin ice with my. I've I've done this a couple times where I show my friends movies where, I take a I take a gamble, and I'm like, can I get this weird with some of my friends? And sometimes it just doesn't work. Oh, it's a rite of passage. That's how you weed out the real friends and the the fake friends. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You ready to get into this movie? I'm beyond ready. Production, pre-production, post-production. Although I don't really have post-production. Let's do the, let's do the whole nine. So the budget for this movie was $25 million. That's it. Like watching this movie, I wouldn't think, I would have thought it cost more than $25 million. See, and I know I'm, I'm also, we're getting better at it, but I, I'm going to save it for the final. But it's like, it, this, is, this movie's proof that you can do so much with so little. Yeah. Wes In Anderson terms, just like knows how to budget his movies. And this movie had re- the returns were $172.9 million. Incredible. So this is the first, like, big hit for Wes Anderson. Yeah, like, yeah. Plus $100 million movie. You know, that's big. And Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's an awesome intake for shooting. I didn't realize it was that the budget was that was in movie money that it was that low. Um, yeah, $25 million. Yeah. It's crazy. Wow. So uh, I think we should talk just for a minute about the aspect ratio because oh, I love yeah. it. It's yeah. the Academy ratio of 1.375 to 1. Uh-huh. So it's like nearly a square. But it's it, that's called the Academy ratio because that's how older movies used to get made. Yeah. But I think that, again, we don't have to get into spoiler territory, but I think that Wes no, like, uses the aspect ratio perfectly in this movie well i think that part of what it is with this movie specifically is because this movie banks on more than anything he's like because i keep bringing up almost every episode i bring up nostalgia wes's movies look like nostalgia and I, in ways you can't really explain and it's like this movie because it's literally peering into the past it's almost like putting a literal viewfinder on the camera and it's like here's your glimpse into the past here's your glimpse into a, an era of a fantastical story and here's because it's a smaller scope you 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 have no choice but to be lasered in on a more focused world so it's like it's interest it's an interesting choice because the movie could have been wide a, a regular widescreen presentation and it's it still would have had the same effect but at the same time there's something about capturing that like old timey look no and it's not a coincidence cuz Wesley Anderson uh said 
that part of the inspiration for this movie were photographs that he was looking at from the 20s and 30s of older hotels. Absolutely. That's kind of where he got his idea initially. And uh, so let's talk about the hotel itself. Wes and his team went to like every possible hotel that they could go to in Europe, but they wanted that grand kind of hotel. Yeah. And one that's like the ones that don't exist anymore. Mm. And they found out, they found most of the hotels were run down and gross and not where they wanted to be. So they actually stumbled across an old department store that was completely vacated in Gorlitz in Germany. Jeez, that's outrageous. Yeah, Um, (laughs) it's crazy. And that place was huge. It was, uh, I don't don't know how big it was, but the top floor was able to be used for wardrobe. It was able to be used for like production offices. They like utilized the entire space. The Hotel Bourget? That's where the cast stayed. Apparently, they apparently they all stayed there during principal photography. It's one of the top uh, IMDb notes. Yeah, they. Um, I mean, they weren't all there at the same time because of shooting schedules. But that's awesome. I think though. Tilda Swinton was the one who said, "Like, you don't know who you're going to run into in the hall because everyone right. was staying in this tiny hotel." Apparently, uh, speaking of Tilda Swinton, she spent five hours in the makeup chair each time to play eighty-four-year-old uh, Madame D. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, we're not usually working with a vast uh, Bruckheimer-type budget on my films so often. So often we're trying to work around, said Wes. But for the old age makeup, I just said, let's get the most expensive people we can. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, and it was the highest grossing movie, independent movie of 2014. And the highest grossing limited release movie of 2014. I didn't know that. None of that shocks me. No. I mean, yeah. And... Uh you know, the Gorlitz, where it was filmed, also was, like, they filmed in the warehouse, the old department store, but they, Wes Anderson said that, like, whenever he walked outside, he found a new spot he wanted to film on. So, like, but it had the aesthetic he was looking for because the city itself is on the border of, like, Germany, Poland, and the Czech Republic. So it's, like, all these cultures, like, coming to meet together. Yeah, it's really, and you can feel it. I mean, you can feel every single location in this movie. You can, it's just, the way it all comes together is, it's very intentional and it it really works. Yeah. Uh, Apparently Willem agreed to do the movie before he even read the script. Wes Anderson just (laughs) called him up and was like, do you want to be in it? And he's like, sure. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Jude Law attests his uh, casting to the fact that he had written letters to Wes Anderson for years, just telling him how much he loved his work. Yeah. Tilda Swinton, awesome. <laughs> right? Tilda Swinton got an email simply asking how would she like to play a 90-year-old countess? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, definitely. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh. And again, the attention to detail is impeccable. It's uh, it's something else. They built road signs. They built signs in general. They built countless documents, legal papers, passports, currencies. They even, uh, the newspapers, apparently, like Wes Anderson wrote the actual print that went in each newspaper. He literally filled newspapers for this movie. Something yeah. that was like on the film for like 10 seconds. 
They Apparently, literally created bus and train lines for this movie. Too. I was going to say, they, it, one of the trivia lines going off what you're saying, it says it contains a complete depiction of the actual events in the headline, all written by Wes. So he actually sat down and like went over every single like event and just fleshed it out. It's just yep. unbelievable. And somehow, with the $25 million budget, they were able to give every costume, uh, every uh, extra an impeccable costume. What's it called? The makeup artist essentially like created stories for each person in the background. It's crazy. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's also no shock that they used miniatures and models in this movie. It's, uh, I was going to say, and it's funny because I felt it then, and I feel it now, and it's a feeling that, I get from this movie's um, attention to detail, especially with props and designing. And it's like, it almost feels like when I look at the miniatures and I look at the smaller sets, it reminds me, I, I don't know why I felt, I remember feeling in the theater is like, it reminded me of a trip to the moon and it reminded me of George Melies and it reminded me of like very like early pioneer filmmaking, because what you're doing is you're taking very simplistic um, like props and, 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 you're taking very small production design and you're creating it in a way that's very joyous and very like kid friendly. And yet like, it's admirable. It's not no, silly. The like, it's, thing is like very, that's spot on. That's good. That, that's how I always felt about it. I felt like it was a modern day George Millions. Like that's, that's, it harks I, back to what made film exist in the first place. It's usually not that he listens, but you just made Wes Anderson's day. <laughs> I, would, I would love nothing more. If one day, that would uh to make to know i was making that man's day would be would be wonderful but hey we'll start with uh you and i so let's uh you want to get into oscars um i do but i don't know if you have this specific trivia event as yeah. the top the top trivia event i'm to be <laughs> scene in which ludwig harvey Keitel says good luck kid before slapping zero tony revelori Slapping zero across the face, it was shot 42 times until Bill Murray was satisfied. And apparently Keitel actually slapped Revelory. That's hilarious. <laughs> the top trivia event, so. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and to satisfy Bill Murray, it's just, I don't know, everything about it. I'm like, okay. but <laughs> Bill Murray had to have been there egging it on because Harvey Keitel is known not to like too many takes. That's no. why he left Eyes Wide Shut, you know? Oh, my God. Absolutely. He's notorious for that. Um, but anyway, uh, but please, I digress. You go on with whatever you were going to say. Uh, the Oscars. Yes, please. It was nominated for eight Oscars, and it won four. That's good. Yeah, it won for best score. It won for best production design, which is not a shock. Costume design and makeup and hairstyling. I think those are all. I don't know what I. I have to again. We say it every week. I'd have to see a list of what it's. I can give you the list right now. But we've already is, talked I, about the score because the it's score the is same. so good. This movie was up against Interstellar. So oh. we've talked about this one before. Grand Budapest, oh, yeah. Alexander Desplat won. He was also nominated for The Imitation Games. Interstellar, okay. Hans Zimmer was nominated. Uh, Gary Yerson for Mr. Turner and Johan Johansson for The Theory of Everything was nominated. Okay, okay. Up in the air as to what what, what it should have won. But well, I remember talking on the on our Interstellar podcast. I remember it was like, oh yeah, what would what could have beat this? This was so good. And I remember talking, bringing up Grand Budapest. Like, oh wait, yeah, like I can actually hear the music in my head. Like I just, yeah, yeah. Uh, production design, 
it was up against uh, the Imitation Games, which was nominated for a lot more than I thought it was. The Imitation Game? Yeah, that movie was that's, up for a lot of Oscars. That's a good movie. It's fine. Well, you know what? You can. You're fine, and you know you can. That's fine. You can keep your fine opinions to yourself. That's fine. Go back to your home on Whore Island. Um, <laughs> it was nominated against Imitation Games, Interstellar, Into the Woods, and Mr. Turner. This is for production design. Um, and okay. I think it. it I think it deserved it. Deserved out of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think I, I believe I said this during the uh, Interstellar podcast it, grand budapest is a character in the movie where i don't know if anything in interstellar really is a character well i mean matthew mcconaughey is a character well not tar actor tars is a character and the spaceship is a character all right all right all right <laughs> those cornfields are characters john lithgow is a character yeah no, we, don't I, I get, to, we don't have I to get, get into the rest of them but uh it was up for Best Picture, Best Director, which was the first time he was nominated for Best Director. Um, uh, Best Original Screenplay and Film Editing. It's funny because I know this movie lost to Birdman. Yep. Which is already a controversial movie. And I remember at the time thinking like, yeah, I love Birdman. I'm not, I'm, I don't want to divert the conversation. I remember thinking at the time, I was like, yeah, rightfully so. Birdman was, was deserved to win. And like in hindsight, I'm like, I feel like... That's a toss-up. That was a pretty good year for movies, 2014. I can give you the list of everything nominated. So Birdman won, American Sniper, Boyhood, Grand Budapest Hotel, Imitation Game, Selma, The Theory of Everything, and Whiplash. See, that's a good year. See, in hindsight, I think Bur I think uh, Budapest would have been my number one. And in uh, even, I think I'd even say Whiplash would be my number two. Whiplash was where I was going with it. I love Whiplash. Uh, yeah, I mean, Whiplash is one of the probably. I, I mean, as far as, far as screenplay wise, and I guess direction, I guess with everything, it's one of the. I think it's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. But we'll yeah. save that for and our I'm Damien not, Chazelle podcast. At the time, I remember it was like Birdman against Boyhood. That was like the competition, and we didn't even talk about Boyhood. No, and we don't need to. It's all right. Um, <laughs> Linklater fans are now signing off. <laughs> I do like Linklater. I have nothing. I love School of Rock. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot he did that. And Bernie. I'm a Jack Black fan. That's a good one. Anyway, we'll save those for the Yeah, we don't have to get into the rest of the awards. Uh well, hold but... on. Let's I want to keep this conversation on track. So basically what you're saying is that Budapest is up to to this point, actually I think until still to this to this day is his most critically acclaimed in terms of the Oscars, in terms of Academy-wise. As In terms of Academy... Nominated for eight and one for four, right? Yep, this is his biggest hit thus far. That's on awesome. a financial level and on a um, awards level. That's awesome. Yeah, he, uh, this man knows what he's doing. Now, this is a man who knows, who knows what he's doing. This <laughs> is a man who knows how to marry his cousin. <laughs> Oh, um community reference number one <laughs> honestly i think that's the best joke of that entire season it's it's one of the only lines that genuinely made me really laugh out loud the way older seasons did but we'll save that for our community podcast <laughs> yeah so uh you ready to get into the movie hell yeah all right all right all right the film opens with the title card quote on the farthest eastern boundary of European continent, 
the former Republic of Zubruka, I hope that's how you pronounce it, once the seat of an empire, setting up to the audience that this is happening in a fictitious yet real world. It's Europe, but it's also in a fictitious country. So it's like, you know, we're already being told this is a story, but it's like somewhat based in reality. Zubrauka. 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 That's how it's spelled. I don't remember them actually saying it, but... I'm sure they do. The The title fades to reveal a woman in a beige jacket walking into an old Lutz cemetery. In the center of the cemetery is a tombstone enshrined by countless hotel keys and crowned by a bust of a figure simply known as Author. This unnamed woman reaches into her bag and takes out a copy of the book, The Grand Budapest Hotel. The film fades back in time to 1985 where author Tom Wilkinson, this guy again, right? Alconi. He was in this movie like a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't laugh that hard. I just didn't expect you to go there. The The film fades back in time to 1985 where the author Tom Wilkinson begins a monologue about how a writer finds stories or rather how stories find a writer. We fade back in time further to 1968. The author's monologue continues but voice changes from Wilkinson to Jude Law. Good for Jude Law. He's having quite a resurgence. I do love that man. I think he's very, I think, I don't want to call him criminally underrated. He's been in some great stuff, but he's a great actor. I always feel it every time I see him on screen. Absolutely. Very charming. Very handsome. Very sexual. (laughs) As the monologue continues, we are introduced to the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is far from its prime. The lobby is run down, are sparse, and the staff, including, including Monsieur G, (laughs) Jason Schwartzman, are, are subpar at best. Among those sparse guests is Zero Mu- what's it called? Mustafa. 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 Once the richest man in the country and current owner of the Grand Budapest. As Sean tells author, Mustafa stays at the hotel three times a year, always in the same tiny room. While relaxing in the hotel baths, the author hears a voice saying, quote, I know who you are. It's very creepy. Very sexual. Very sexual. He's using the dentist technique. <laughs> the dentist system. You know, he knows who he is, you know, because the implication. It is Mustafa. Unfortunately, Mustafa invites the author to dine with him in the evening. There, Mustafa will regale his story, only if author is truly interested in hearing it. In what has now become a West trope, Mustafa orders dinner for him and the author. It's it's a trope at this point. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, Mustafa's like, all right, we're going to have X, Y, Z, and that's the end of it. Just like in Darjeeling, the, what's it called, Owen Wilson and Angelica Houston order for everyone. It, and I think that it happened again in uh, another movie, but it always I, happens. I would love to do this in a, uh, like a, 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 a... A, um, a studying kind of way where you almost take the notes and like if they're talking over dinner what have they disclosed like what does the dinner represent you know and like because I feel like there's a reason he goes back to these kinds of tropes I don't know I guess dinner is a power play to him because uh, the person ordering everyone's food holds the power right right and there's some obviously some kind of 
narrative dominance he's creating in his characters uh, in presenting themselves at dinner. It's just a weird little tactic that like if you had not said that if you had not picked up on that i would not have even made that connection but yeah this is like every movie that he does he's doing this with dinner yeah this and the <laughs> dynamite it's all over the place it's it's all yeah exactly he's an anarchist in the making it's about the control it. and the dynamite um so mustafa orders dinner for both him and himself and the author he begins his story by saying it begins with their mutual acquaintance, Monsieur John's predecessor. Part one. M. Gustave, 1932. I just, again, I just keep wanting it to be Alec Baldwin. Gustave, the one and only Ray Fiennes, is standing silhouetted on the balcony, looking out on the snowy mountains. A knock on the door is heard and the room comes to life. Gustave directing his employees on where the table should be set. Gustave is then seen having a meal with the, 80, with the 84-year-old Madame D, Tilda Swinton, who in an incredibly small and yet memorable role, not unlike what you were saying about Klaus, uh, what's his name, with Defoe as Klaus in Life Aquatic. For me, this is, Tilda Swinton's one of those, I mean, Every a lot of people in this movie are just in one of those, but like Tilda Swinton's not in it much. But every time she's on screen, she kills. Literally it. every character in this movie is a wait. They're in this movie. Uh, like, it's incredible. We didn't talk about it up front, but we can talk about it now. This movie's cast like it's it's crazy. Every tiny role is filled with someone huge. I just realized the thought I was going to have before we began this. I was like, I feel like I'm forgetting something. It's that it's almost like if. Wes Anderson's filmography is the is the MCU. This is the end game. This is like, oh, here's this person from that movie and this person from that movie and Bill Murray from all these movies and Jason. No, Ford this from- is like this is like Civil War because Endgame is Isle of Dogs because literally every small voice in that movie is someone huge. Oh, literally. we gotta get. I gotta. I gotta watch. I've only seen it once, but I. I remember thinking it was a big cast, but like I feel like Wes is like it's because Wes seems so chill, and I, I have to imagine that's how he is. He's like, hey, you know, like I'm making another movie. You want to be part of it? And like Owen Wilson's like, yeah, yeah, all right, you know, just kind of like yeah, you know, and everyone does their own voice, but it's like they're all gonna say yes because why not? They're not only critical hits, but like they're obviously having the time of their lives making these movies. But I remember watching Grand Budapest for the first time in that theater in Port Washington and being like, holy shit, this person's in that movie. And wait, Willem Dafoe, I think has no dialogue. He has dialogue. He does. It's very minimal, but it's, he does have a couple lines. That's great. But I, anyway, I digress. Tilda Swinton, like many people in this movie, incredible for even a small amount of time that they're on screen, so. Uh, where was I? Okay, so Gustav is then seen having a meal with the 84-year-old Madame D, Tilda Swinton. She is very upset, believing that this will be the last time that she and Gustav will see one another. She's good. Quite the premonition. Gustav, consoling D, takes her hand, but stops mid-monologue to talk about the varnish of her nails. <laughs> Truly and honestly, oh dear God, what have you done to your fingernails? I beg your pardon? This diabolical varnish, the color is completely wrong. Oh, really? Don't you like it? It's not that I don't like it. I, I am physically repulsed. Holy shit, how was Ray Fiennes not nominated for this movie? I kept thinking that the entire time I watched this movie. I didn't think about the Oscars while I was watching it, but every time I watch this... People talk about Ray Fiennes, like, yeah, he's a great actor, but, like, he's his dry humor is incredible. This is a new kind of role for him, I think, because I don't know if he's ever done 
comedy before. Not like he, this. He's, he's done... played the charming man. He's played the straight man. But this is like a weird role where you have to be like a, a charming straight guy. Right. That straight, also may not be. Straight is the very, very loose word for <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I don't know. It's just very. Um, I don't know if you've seen In Bruges, Martin McDonough. He, he's, the, he's the villain. And he's, and he's very funny in that movie, but it's a different kind of but funny. But it's a dry he, humor. This is more witty. It's more of a lighting. It's so quick. It's so. I can't explain. He's like a British cartoon. And like, I can't. It's just. It's so, like, I just, even just reading your, even just reading the quote of it, it's not that I don't like it, I'm physically repulsed and I'm hearing it in his voice, cracks me up. Like, I just, I, it's... It's a I, crime I, that he has never won an Oscar. It's unbelievable, so... Um, and I'll get, be honest, I hold it against Tommy Lee Jones wholeheartedly to this day. What did Tommy Lee Jones win for? 1993, he won for The Fugitive over uh, Ray Fiennes, who was... Amon Goth in Schindler's List, which is like oh. a seminal performance. That's like the most chilling, horrible human being that has almost ever been put on the screen. It's like yeah, we could talk about this off record until the cows come home. But it's like Tommy Lee Jones is is very good in The Fugitive. But he got it because of that improvised line of "I don't care." On the red-walled elevator, Gustav recites poetry to her. D is loaded into the car and expresses her love once more for Gustav. He reciprocates. As the car drives, I don't know why that line always sticks when she's like, I love you. She's in the car and he has, she has his hand. It's great. Um, as the car drives away, Gustav expresses to zero Tony Revolori that in the 19 seasons he has known Madame D, she had, he has never seen her like that. More crassly saying that she was shaking like a shitting dog. <laughs> Oh my god! It's, there's the cynicism in this movie. His character's filled with it, but it's like so that he keeps it so behind, like this lavish drape. I don't it's, know. It's he does what Bill Murray. I, I can't, it's not even the same thing. It's not even the same ball. It's the same ballpark. Obviously, Wes is going for a specific type of humor. It's what Bill Murray does with like very casual one-off lines. Like Bill Murray like shrugs his lines, and it's flawless. Where where uh, Ray Fiennes is kind of like, he delivers them in a theatrical way, like almost like he's in a play. And it's so deliberate, but it's dry. And it's very funny. He never cracks a smile. You know I what I mean? It's, it's The perfume is more than just like what it is. It He truly is a repulsive human being that just like covers himself in... In charm. Charm. He's, and he's, he's, he's such a likable man. And yet you're like, beneath the surface, you're like, he's saying out, out very outlandish things. Yeah. Sometimes you get a whiff of the shitty smell that's inside the perfume. And I'm not saying he's a horrible human being. Obviously, there are no, worse yeah, yeah, people yeah. in this movie. I'm just saying that, like, he has a very cynical side that comes out occasionally. But, it's true. You know, it's just hidden beneath a lot of charm. I love it. It's really something. I just feel like I'm going to keep... I, I want to keep coming back to this. I feel like every line he has, I can keep coming back to it. But yeah. anyway, <clears throat> I digress. Focusing back on the moment, Gustav realizes he has no idea who Zero is. Mosher... Larry Pine hires a zero on a temporary basis, pending Gustav's approval, of course. As Gustav and Zero walk to the hotel, the interview begins. Experience. Hotel Kinski, kitchen boy, six months. Hotel Berlitz, mop and broom boy, three months. Before that, I was a skillet scrubber. Experience, Zero. Thank you again, Mr. Gustav. Written that count, Anatole. The pleasure's mine, Herr Schneider. The stress busters. These are not acceptable. I fully agree. Education. I studied reading and spelling. I started my primary school I almost finished. Education, zero. Now it's exploded. Good morning, Cicero. Call the goddamn plumber. 
this afternoon, Monsieur Pistol. Will that fail, Frau Liebling? One hundred cents. Not now. Family? Zero. Six, Eagle. Why do you want to be a lobby boy? Well, who wouldn't? At the Crown Budapest, sir. It's an institution. Very good. Very good. <laughs> One month later, Zero is under the tutelage of Gustav. Zero begins to notice that many of the guests come to the hotel for the company of M. Gustav. Zero also notices the type of person Gustav attracts. They had to be rich, old, insecure, vain, superficial, blonde, needy. It is also noted by the older Zero that Gustav used a lot of perfume. That's a great analogy with the, the character. It's, I know it's on purpose. But. The yeah. scent announced his approach from a great distance and lingered for many minutes after he was gone. Zero also goes over the rigorous scheduling of being a lobby boy. He worked six days a week and half a day on Sunday, which required working from 5 a.m. to midnight. Nice Gustav, half day. That's quite a half day. <laughs> Gustav ran a tight ship, even giving sermons to his staff as they ate dinner. There was also a mystery to the hotel. No one knew who the owner was, but every month, Deputy Kovacs, Jeff Goldblum, um, I'll say my thoughts when he come, more comes into play, but would come to go over the books with Moser and Gustav. Part two, Madam C-V-D-U-T. Zero is getting the newspaper for the hotel guests when he notices a headline. He runs as fast as he can to Gustav, who is with another older woman. I was actually kind of taken aback. I didn't remember how many like sexual situations we saw Gustav in with uh, older women. It's a small glimpse, but you get the. You're supposed to. I, I'm some. I got the idea that he's. This is his thing. He courts older women. The headline is revealed. Dower Countess found dead in boudoir. Madame D is dead. Gustave says he must go to her at once. Gustave and Zero take the train to Lutz. While on the train, Gustave pontificates about the meaninglessness of life, but hopes Madame D left him something. Gustave then shocks Zero by saying that Madame D was great in the sack. When Zero points out she was 84, Gustave retorts, quote, I've had older. When you're when you're young, it's all filet steaks, but as the years go by, you have to move on to the cheaper cuts, which is fine with me because I like those more flavorful or so they say. <laughs> okay. To Good each their grief. own. Good grief. The train stops suddenly in an empty field on the Lutz border. Three guards come onto the train car and ask for papers. Gustav tries to charm the guards who want no part in it, Zero takes out his crumpling work visa, which prompts the, uh, the guards to attack Zero. Gustav assures the guards that Zero's papers are in order. The situation escalates when the guard grabs Zero, prompting Gustav to stand. Both Zero and Gustav are thrown to the wall, at which point Gustav shouts, quote, Take your hands off my lobby boy! You know, I just, oh my god, you know what? You know who could have played Gustav 20 years earlier? Kelsey Grammer. That's a very astute observation. Um, and I think I know why, because the character... Is Frasier. Yeah. The character, it's a more charming Frasier. 
the character is a brilliant, cynical, sarcastic, and yet inevitably charming, lovable human being. Like, Tr- Frazier's the best, like, likable asshole, and so is Gustav. Like, even Gustav not calling him an asshole is is wrong. Like, like you said, like, there's worse characters, but, like, that snooty, like, sarcastic, like, I, I don't know, that... Don't that get me no- wrong, I think... Uh... Ray Fiennes is more charming than Kelsey Grammer probably would have played it, but like that. But he could have played that. I'm role. just saying, if it, this movie had been made 20 years prior, I could see 100 Kelsey I Grammer can, playing it. That's I, I hundred. I completely. I can completely see it because it's it's. I don't know. There's a very witty, aggressive sense of sarcasm there that just works for both of them. Yeah. Anyway, take your hands off my lobby boy. A whistle blows, and Albert heckles Edward Norton, the commanding officer, enters the train car. Henkels knows Gustav from the time in the Grand Budapest and orders his men to let them go. Henkels then gives Zero a visa card that should keep him out of trouble in the future. As the train starts up again, Gustav says, You see, there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. Indeed, that's what we provide in our own modest, humble, insignificant... No, fuck it. (laughs) But see, that's the cynicism. I love it. That's like where the shit scent sneaks out of the heavy perfume well what it is is it's trying it's and i see it's funny because now i get i'm just trying to picture that's frazier but what it is is it's it's the astute way of trying to make an intelligent argument for whatever it is you're trying to say and as you're as the character is explaining it they're realizing that they're like rambling and like they may not they're not going to get through to who they're talking to so they're like whatever you know i think it's more him talking to himself he's just trying to he's reassuring zero sure but he's also trying to calm himself down because right. I'm quite sure he hasn't been hit like that ever. Gustav and Zero's taxi pulls up to Madame D's mansion. Immediately, Gustav says to the maid, Colette, Lee Sadow. Do you know who that is? She's in a bunch of movies. She's the new Bond girl. She was in Spectre. She was in uh, Blue is the Warmest Color. She's the foe. She looks like someone. She's, she's foreign, right? She's, uh... she's French. I'll keep going. Gustav right, yeah, says yeah, yeah. to the maid to take him to Madame D. Gustave Ever, the charmer, feels the need to talk and compliment the corpse. You're looking so well, darling. You really are. They've done a marvelous job. I don't know what sort of cream they've put on you down at the morgue, but I want some. Honestly, you look better than you have in years. You look like you're alive. Wild stuff. It's amazing. Love it. Gustave also notices that Madame T changed her nails. Gustave and Zero go to the kitchen for a glass of water. There, Serge stares the two down alerting them to something nefarious that may be going on in the other room. Both Gustav and Zero go to the next room where the will reading is about to take place. Madame D's will is in the hands of Kovacs. Kovacs. <laughs> yeah. Good grief, son. He begins to read the will. The estate will go to Madame D's son, Dimitri, Adrian Brody. Oh, man. Allow- yeah. He's Adrian Brody's an out- he plays an outrageous part. <laughs> Allowance will be rewarded to her daughters, and gifts will be given to several family members. But the big prize, Boy with Apple, has been bequeathed to Gustav. Dimitri, shocked and angry, confronts Gustav, calling him a fruitcake. Dimitri then asks Gustav, (laughs) sorry, Dimitri, this is just like too funny. This whole delivery, I want you to finish the sentence. Yeah, Dimitri then asks Gustav, 
if he fucked his mother. Gustav pushes the matter further, asking how it could be possible if he was a fruitcake. Things escalate as Dimitri punches Gustav. Zero punches Dimitri, Joplin, Willem Dafoe, Dimitri's bodyguard slash fixer, then punches Zero. Um, After- yeah, no, finish the sentence. I'm sorry. After the altercation, Zero and Gustav find and steal the painting with the help of Serge. Um, that moment, I know they used it in the trailers, and I know that it's one of his more slapstick moments, but that moment where they're all punching each other in the face is just, it's a genuinely comedic moment because it's not used like, they're not using violence in a way that's like, uh, in a way for slapstick. It's like they're building the dialogue and they're calling, he's calling some a fruitcake and he just hits him. And it's just funny because they're all, they, <laughs> the way they each look at one another, it's almost like they know it's coming. Like he hits him and then he looks and then the other one hits him and then Zero looks and he gets struck by Will Defoe. And it's just like the way that that happens. It's so notably fast. staged, but that's what makes it funny. Back on the train, Gustav and Zero admire the painting. Gustav even notes that the boy in the painting even looks like him, which was hilarious. I love it. At first, Gustav says he will keep the painting and cherish it forever but quickly then changes his mind and decides to sell it, promising to give Zero 1.5% of the profits. Zero tries to negotiate to 10, but instead Gustav swears to make Zero his sole heir. Upon their return to the Grand Budapest, Gustav and Zero put the painting in the safe. They're quickly interrupted by the elevator boy telling them the police would like to talk to Gustav, which that moment is also very notable because when... Uh, Gustav is told the police are here to see you. That's the first time you ever see Gustav whimper, where he goes The police are here. They asked for you. Tell them I'll be right there. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it doesn't have that normal gusto of like um, or charm. It's very like I'm taken aback. Like It's almost like he loses his confidence for a moment because he knows that there's an actual threat to yeah. what to his demeanor. Incredible. The policeman in charge of the case is Hinkles. They believe that Gustav killed Madame D. While hearing this, Gustav in front of the police tries to run for it. I have to fact check myself, but there's a very like, I don't know if it's Charlie Chaplin or if it's more of like the Marx Brothers, where like the slapstick is very intentional at times. And that's one of those moments. Yeah, where it's like it's very like you're supposed to laugh but it's not in like a corny or cliche way it's like hey this is just genuine like slapstick like it's like hey here's a situation and the character just runs away and like you know he's not gonna outrun them so like it's, it's like it's definitely a Chaplin-esque moment I'm thinking like, of uh what's that movie Fuck. Modern Times he did that with the the police I believe with the red flag he tried, right like, like it's during that parade it, sequence, I think he like tried to run for it from the police. Right. Like it's designed to make the audience laugh because the audience knows like you can't outrun the police. So it like it's it's like you're supposed to laugh, but it's not like a cheap laugh. Like it's just done for pure comedic effect in a very classic way. It, again, it's like like oh, the way I said that the the style of filmmaking harks back to George Melies. Like the comedy harks back to like old pioneer comedy. Like maybe I'm, I'm diving too deep, but that's how I feel watching this is it's like, no, this movie definitely is predicated on nostalgia. Uh, part three, checkpoint 10 criminal internment camp. One week later, zero with a patient from Mendel's visits Gustav in prison. Gustav has two black eyes and a cut on his forehead. Zero asks what happened. And in the most sophisticated 
prison talk ever. Gustav says, What happened, my dear Zero, is I beat the living shit out of a sniveling little runt called Picky Bandinsky, who had the gall to question my virility. Because if there's one thing we've learned from Penny Dreadfuls, is that when you find yourself in a place like this, you must never be a candy ass. You've got to prove yourself from day one. You've got to win their respect. The way, like, what I love about this dialogue, Gustav's transformation and the way he's describing this story in such a short amount of dialogue that only takes seconds, for him to go the way he does and then deliver it, like, you That's what I'm a- saying. It's like the most eloquent prison talk that has ever been written. And it's- honestly, I completely forgot about this line, and it is the hardest I laughed through the entire movie. Zero tells Gustav that he met in secret with Kovacs. Kovacs said the only witness to the murder was Serge X, who has gone missing. Jopling is looking for a Serge too, showing up to his sister's house. Gustav says he has an alibi for the night but it involves a married duchess, which is a non-starter. Gustave has become the de facto concierge of the prison, passing out mush to the inmates. His cellmates, led by Ludwig, Harvey Keitel, is leading the effort to escape the prison. Ludwig takes out a map, which Gustave compliments and explains what is needed. We cut back to 1968, where Mustafa, with a tear in his eyes, says that it's time to bring Agatha, Saoirse Ronan, into the story. Back in 1932, their love story is shared, as we see Zero proposing to her in a movie theater and riding a merry-go-round. Even Gustav approves of, of this union, though he flirts with Agatha, which Zero is not thrilled about. Saoirse Ronan is like a small part, but this is like, I don't know, this was before she was like a household name. It's funny because she, she wasn't much of a person, like in the, the way she is now, um, but People know how to pronounce her name now. Back then, they did not. <laughs> right. I remember watching this. It. I'm like, oh, who's uh, Sayorsi? You know, who's the cute chick with the, uh, the birthmark? The Mexico you know? birthmark. <laughs> <laughs> but um, even, even her commitment to the role shows early signs of how good she would later be. You know, her yeah. role her role is small enough that it doesn't demand much acting in terms of like a grandiose sense. But like, even then, like her role is significant. You can't have, you can't really have the story of zero without her. You know what I mean? She's a significant part of his stories, but I digress. Her addition to the story is because she works for the Mendel's pastries. She can place the necessary tools inside the baked goods. Zero trusts Agatha so implicitly that he gives her the combination to the safe to get to the painting though she will need a magnifying glass. (laughs) See, that's the old school style of humor that I feel like this movie channels. It's just like... Yeah, that's like... I I love it so much. That's Mark's Brothers right there. It's it's so good. Um, Kovacs is meeting with Dimitri, his sisters, and Joplin. The meeting does not go well, as Kovacs says he works for Madame D, not for Dimitri. As Dimitri storms out, Joplin... Earl's Kovacs cat out the window. I remember watching. <laughs> I remember watching that in the theater and like having like that shock funny moment. Like I was just jarred. Like he's just sitting there and just all of a sudden he's sitting there. The frame doesn't change and he tosses the cat out the window and you just hear the cat and he's like, "Did you just toss my cat out the window?" And I remember being like, "Oh, this movie's a lot funnier than I realized." And like Wes Anderson just loves killing animals in his movies. I've said he does it every movie. He kills either <laughs> a, a person, he kills either a dog or a cat or a 
or the I, person closest to a dog, or or, or or a son, a long lost son of a of a of a person going on a an aquatic expedition. That's I what I was saying. A person closest to a dog. It's really disrespectful, but I get it, and it's for comedic purposes, and I respect comedy. So, I digress. Uh, later that night, Chopling follows Kovacs into a museum, which is extremely well shot, to say the least. Yeah, uh, that. So that hallway scene when like uh, he's going down with all the knights. I know exactly. Oh, I just can't. I can't. I can't with this whole movie. Ultimately, Joplin cuts off Kovac's fingers and then kills him. Jesus Christ! That scene where the door slamming with the fingers and, and the just fingers just drop and they just drop. It's so brutal, but like because it's a a still frame from far away, you don't feel. You don't feel the pain. It doesn't feel gory. It doesn't feel like it's out of his element. It feel it still feels within Wes's world, but it's still so jarring. Like the door closes and the fingers drop. You're like, holy shit, what did I just watch? But I digress. Uh, three days later, the prison break is on. Gustav and his cellmates manage to get out of the cell, find an extremely large ladder, and even kill a few guards. This, I... I'm sorry. I just, I knew this movie would be impossible to cover. I want to talk about everything and I can't, I can't, I can't. They escape out of a manhole. Is that the scene with the knife and he jumps down the hole? Yeah. And he just stabs everyone. I don't know why I find it so funny to see Harvey Keitel making dialogue and he's halfway sticking out of a hole and he's completely shaven, but he's got the chest tattoos and he puts the dagger in his mouth and he jumps down the hole and you hear him killing the people. I, I just, Again, it's that Chaplin or Marx Brothers humor that's just like, I can't explain it. Like, you see it off screen. It's, you know what's happening. What I it's love all- so much about that is it's a square within a square because yes. essentially it's a, you know, what we were saying before, it's the Academy shot. But inside of the Academy shot is another, fuck, is another um, square hole that you're looking through. And it's just beautifully shot. It's amazing. Um... <laughs> Go on, though. I, I, it really is. It's really, it's, it's, it's truly remarkable. But you know, like I said, I digress. Um, uh, they escape out of the manhole where, but they escape out of a manhole where Zero is already waiting. But Zero did not find a safe house, did not bring disguises, and most egregious of all, forgot Gustav's perfume. Gustav lambasts against Zero, asking him why he is even in this country at all. Rough stuff for Zero. Uh, he then Zero then reveals the war in his home country took everything from him. He is a refugee. Gustav apologizes and said that his behavior was below the standards of the Grand Budapest. Zero accepts the apology, says that they are brothers. The prison alarms go off and Gustav and Zero make a run for it. Yes, leading the investigation once again is Henkels, who with his head outside the hole the prisoners dug is ordering his men. Somehow jo- uh, Jopling is at the cell door listening in. Henkels, seeing Jopling, questions him about Kovac's murder. Part four, Society of the, Cross, the Crossed Keys. At a phone booth, Gustav calls Ivan, Bill Murray, another concierge. The network of concierges is unleashed in a string of phone calls to other hotels. Ivan in a car picks Gustav and Zero up, saying that the society has has located Serge in a a remote foothill near Gabelmeister, Meister's Peak, 
Ivan also gives them third-class train tickets and most importantly, Gustav perfume. Back in Lutz, Dimitri going through his mother's will finally notices that the painting is gone and has been replaced by a painting of lesbians fingering each other. It took him this long to notice that that picture is up. <laughs> oh, that's the moment where Adrian Brody's walking. He looks at me, he's like, what the fuck? And then he looks and it's, it zooms in. It does like a crash zoom. I did, that's exactly it. And I love the costume design too, because you concentrate on like his bright red slippers, <laughs> his black robe, and then you see him like walking like Morticia Adams and looking up at the painting going, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and, it's, and it's just funny because like, it's not like it's a bad painting. Like I guess in an artsy kind of way, like it's fine, but it's funny because it's definitely not Boy with Apple. So <laughs> that, That's what makes it so funny. It's like it's the so most- it's so it, not the boy with apple, you it's know. It's three women fingering each other. So you would think that someone would look up and at least notice that. That's what's funny to me about it. Is it's like here's this very, very loudly different painting. It's not that it's bad. It's just it's, it's incredibly different. So it's like oh, to look and have that reaction. I feel like that's the only. It's like what the fuck am I looking at? And I think that's what makes it special. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like it's it's all, it does its own thing with it. It's just it's a great a great moment. The maid says that Gustav took the painting. In re- in a red herring sequence, Agatha is seen packing a bag and hearing footsteps on the roof. In Hinkle's office the next day, it is revealed a woman's head was found in a basket. Serge's sister. That was like stressful for me uh, the first time I watched it. I agree. I was just going to say. Because like we've been commenting, Wes has no remorse when it comes to killing people. He'll, like he'll just kill Ned willy-nilly. It's sad. So like I thought maybe she definitely could have died, especially since uh, Mustafa clearly is no longer with her and she doesn't seem, you know, he's crying when he talks about her in 1968. To Jude well, Law's character, right? So, so if you if you build to this point, it, like if uh, uh, I can't I can't speak for myself as a person who has never seen Wes's filmography up until this point, but I can imagine like getting into his movies, knowing his style, picking up on his tropes, and then getting to this point where you're like, this very well could just be the death of a a seemingly beloved character, the love interest for a main character, like. I, no one could put it past him. It absolutely could have been her. And so it's kind of like, how could you not think that? You know what I mean? There's no reason that Wes would give you reason to think otherwise. He absolutely would kill someone like that off. So it's like, it's very, of course, there's that moment of stress early on. You're like, oh my God, is this the horrible yeah. moment I don't want to see? Anyway, by midday, Gustav and Zero reach the observatory summit at a mountain peak. A monk asked, Are you Monsieur Gustav of the Grand Budapest Hotel in Naples Bath? Uh-huh. Get on the next cable car. Two cable cars stop halfway up the mountain. A monk asked, Are you Monsieur Gustav of the Grand Budapest Hotel in Naples Bath? Uh-huh. Switch with me. The car takes them to a monastery. Once there, a monk asks, Are you Monsieur Gustav of the Grand Budapest Hotel in Naples Bath? Uh-huh. The monk then hands them robes. They sit and pray inside the church. Another asks, Are you Monsieur Gustav of the Yes, damn it! It's, a, it's an incredible exchange of comedy, that scene. That moment, like the build to that funny moment. Um, Gustav is told to go to the confessional. Waiting for him inside is Serge. Serge confirms to Gustav and Zero that there was a second will, 
but it was destroyed. But not to worry, there was a second copy to the second will. Before Serge can tell Gustav and Zero where it is, Serge is murdered by Joplin, who is in a monk robe, which was also kind of funny. That was like... Oh, um, yeah. That was almost a spoof of, like, the Da Vinci Code or something. Seeing this, Gustav and Zero pursue Joplin in a very fast ski chase. Like, zoom, zoom. That's... And again, that's like the, I don't know if it's Melies, but that's the old film humor. I, I don't know what it is, just seeing these tiny characters zip off the mountains like that. Like, mm-hmm. I just like, there's something that's very, that hits different watching it from that approach than watching them if they were up close. And it was like more. Not many directors can pull off like a fake, like you, the audience knows that this is a model and loves right. the fact that it's a model. But then that's my whole point. It's yeah. like they know it's fake, but they, they, they eat it up because that's the whole point. The chase ends with Joplin landing perfectly fine. Zero <laughs> buried in a pile of snow and Gustav hanging off a cliff. Joplin begins to kick the snow that Gustav is holding onto for dear life. As Gustav recites poetry, Zero sneaks up behind Joplin and pushes him off the cliff. Which is amazing. Um, Once incredible. Lifted, once lifted to safety, Henkley blows his whistle. Zero recommends that they flee the scene. Gustav agrees, but wants to take a moment. Uh, but wants to take a moment of silence for Serge. Part five: the second copy of the second will. The Grand Budapest Hotel has been commandeered by the military. Soldiers and flags are all over the lobby. M. Chuck Owen Wilson has taken over the concierge duties. Agatha, being the least conspicuous, walks into the hotel to retrieve the painting from the safe. Dimitri and his sisters arrive at the hotel moments later. He immediately spots Agatha, who now has the painting. Sensing danger, Gustav and Zero go into the hotel, wearing Mendel's uniforms and carrying pastries. Uh, They ask the new lobby boy where Dimitri went. He says, the elevator. Zero takes these precious moments to tell the lobby boy he hasn't been properly trained. As he gave up information, he should be a stone wall. And it's funny because you still feel like Zero is a new character. You still feel like he's a, he's still almost in his own training. So for him to talk to another lobby boy like this is almost funny because it still feels like Zero is the one being trained. Absolutely. But just um, trained in different art forms now, I guess. I, I, I love Well, it's, it's funny because it makes you realize how much Zero has grown as a character, not so much as a lobby boy. You know what I mean? but I digress. Dimitri on the elevator with Agatha begins to rip the wrapping over the painting. As they reach the sixth floor, Dimitri, in my Michael Myers' slow walk pace, probably the best way to put it, because he's still a menacing threat and he never changes his pace. No, he walks extremely slow as she runs away and he's just like, yeah, I'll catch you. It's incredible. That's a great way of putting it. Um, this is about to build to a great scene. Um, Hankel's also arriving, runs up the stairs. Dimitri, reaching an empty hall, spots Gustav and Zero getting off the elevator and starts to shoot at them. This whole scene is incredible. Soldiers come out of the rooms and start shooting at one another. Hankel's tries to stop the shooting, but it commences again once he announces everything is under arrest. Literal that, friendly fire. <laughs> that whole scene is both exciting and hilarious all at once. I think the line is from Edward Norton is, hold on. Everyone's under arrest. Like, it's a very comedic moment. But, like, you're at this moment where, like, who's going to die? Who's going to live? Like, I don't know. Like, it's That's a, a very, very like, like you, 
pointed out earlier, that's like a very Marx Brothers <laughs> kind of moment. Everyone is literally shooting for no reason, and the cop comes in to say a witty line, then everyone resumes to shoot. It's like, <laughs> Nobody move, everyone's under arrest. Like, it's just funny, because it breaks the tension, because you're like, you've already proved that you're willing to kill off random characters. Like, what's going to happen? This is a Wes Anderson film. You're willing to kill off cats and dogs. Like, wh- what am I to believe anymore? You know? So, kill a dog. Um, like a dog. Like a dog. <laughs> dog um zero finds agatha in the painting hanging off the side of the hotel he tries to save her but ends up falling out of the window hanging alongside her they both fall but safely land in the pastry car hankles gathers everyone in the dining room as agatha has spotted the second copy of the second will on the painting madame d has left everything not just the painting to gustave in an unspecified amount of time later, it is shown in the newspaper that Dimitri has vanished and is now suspected of killing his mother. All charges against Gustav has been, have been dropped. Zero was put in the charge of the Grand Budapest Concierge. What's more, Gustav was able to officiate Zero and Agatha's wedding. Solemnly, Mustafa says that Agatha and their son died two years later from Prussian ripe an easily curable disease by 1968. Honestly, this was kind of a Ned death to me. You just like pulled her out from under you. We'll save these thoughts for the final thoughts. All right, keep going. Actually, I don't know how I can weave it into my. I have so many final thoughts. I don't want to say any of them because I'm. Just, I don't want to. I don't want to waste this whole. We've already made great dialogue. I feel like Wes has to. My whole thing and we can do a psychological evaluation of Wes another time, but it's like, I feel like his whole thing is he can only hold on to a true moment of happiness for so long before he's like, Nope, I need to eat with reality and people die and people get sick and there's diseases and dogs die. And there's these horrible things that happen. And like, let me just hit you with a dose of reality. And that's kind of what I feel like this was like, I do see how it's out of left field, but it's also like, that's how life is. You know what I mean? Like, it's a cheap card to play, but it's like, that's the way I see it. It's, it's like, it's shitty, but that's just the roll of the dice sometimes. Um, But it's, I mean, does it merit the way he writes his stories with these sharp left turns? That's up for debate. And that's something that is not really for you and I to debate. It could be if you ever wanted to like, just dive into it. But like also, I think we debated it with Ned. We don't have well, to relitigate the, it. Right, because that's the whole thing is he's like, hey, my stories hark back to a sense of like old school style storytelling. And yet like, here's my sense of like a pepper of reality to remind you that, hey, sometimes life sucks. My problem with uh, some of the deaths though is not that it's just like peppered in and it's not about the reality. It's just about the sudden nature of it. And the almost like, unremorseful moment of it. I guess Mustafa cries about her in his own way, but I don't know. I just feel like some characters get ripped right out from under the rug for me. Well, I'm right. And so honestly, as much as I used to dislike that kind of storytelling, I think that it's, it's important in certain stuff, certain kinds of storytelling. Um, I'm going to get into it more because this next scene, I don't think we're there yet. No, we're yeah, not there going. yet. It's because the more of that, what you, exactly what you're saying is what ties into what I'm about to say next. Um, 
The film switches to black and white as Gustave, Agatha, and Zero are on the train to Lutz. Once again, the train is stopped by the army, but this time things do not work out like before. Zero's visa and Henkel's card are not enough. Zero is knocked unconscious and Gustave attacks the guard. Mustafa confirms that Gustave was then shot, leaving everything to Zero. Um, just a yeah, real this quick... ties in perfectly to what we were just talking about. Right, so, to, so just to tie in, is so it's like... Again, I'm, I want to not keep this into th- final thoughts because I actually have final thoughts I think I want to say. But it's like Wes Anderson has a very unique way of presenting stories as we've talked about in ways that Raul Dahl tells stories. It's a fantastical world he's painting. Even something as simple as Bottle Rocket of creating a heist and falling in love with a, a maid or whatever it is he's saying. And he has a very simplistic human way of looking at life. And so very in the way of get, getting caught up in, in very human-like stories, it's easy to be like, this is like a fairy tale. Like I'm getting caught up in Bill Murray taking a expedition out to, the, in, out to sea and do his own thing. Or just to talk about a, a dysfunctional family that has their own quirky traits. And one of them tries to commit suicide and you know, the other one is secretly smoking. Like these tiny little human traits that makes up humans being human. Taking a train ride to India to meet your mother or whatever. It's like, you know what I mean? Like he's so good at painting characters as human in a way that tells a fantastical story that feels like you're reading a book. That feels like you're going to a novel. And yet he finds these ways of disgracefully unveiling the horrible truths of the world that like, hey, you know what? Sometimes characters die. And sometimes people don't make it. And sometimes there's not always happy endings. And he has a very morbid way of doing it for someone who has an otherwise very uplifting way of looking at the world. Because his movies are very feel-good. And I don't mean that in the sense of like a a silly rom-com or whatever. Like his movies make you feel delightful. And yet it's like moments like these, with these deaths and these very random, uh, like you said perfectly, like pulling the rug from under you, ways of just hitting you hard is it's like how can this movie just dish out this kind of bleak um morbid plotting in such an otherwise uh uplifting story you know i know right but that's that's part of what makes it human no what you're saying i was very eloquently said you probably should have saved that for your your i'm fucking i mean i'm more a paragraph away from the final thoughts but uh (laughs) I don't know. The only thing I can compare it to is kind of is No Country for Old Men, where you I, don't I, see the main <laughs> character die. Like this is right. spoiler alert to 2007's Jesus No Country Christ. for Old Men. Spoiler but, alert. But you just—it's the build, but you don't get to even really say goodbye. And I guess maybe that is re- like real life, but at the yeah. same time, like. I, I I don't know. Maybe it does play into the fairy tale aspect of the world that he creates. Back in 1968, Mustafa and the author finish up their dinner. Jean is not at the concierge desk, but this time we notice hanging in the concierge booth is the boy with apple painting. Author asks if Mustafa kept the hotel for Gustave. Mustafa says that he kept it for Agatha. Mustafa takes the elevator to his room. The author's monologue picks up again, saying that he went to South America for many years after this encounter. He never saw the hotel again. In 1985, the older author is writing a note. We we quickly cut back to where it began with the young woman in the beige coat reading the Grand Budapest Hotel 
by the author's grave. The end. Ah, dude, I can't. I can't with this movie. Yeah, this, uh, I, I'll give my final thoughts and I'll try and keep them quick because... Yeah, uh, yeah give your final thoughts and I'll give like a dish of whatever I was saying. because I was Yeah, my final that. thought, this movie is just like a whole... I don't know. It's just so joyous to me. Like every... It's another one of those movies that falls into the perfect film realm. It's only an hour, 40 minutes, but look at how much talk Josh and I got into over this hour and 40 minute movie. Like could have had the same length conversation about like Endgame, you know? It, that's just how much detail is put into one of Wes Anderson's movies. And that's what you appreciate most about this movie, the attention to detail and just how witty and charming this movie is. Uh, like I said, I'll keep it short. So that's kind of where I am on this movie. I have literally nothing negative to say about it i love it it's earlier saying i feel like this is a culmination of what Wes was building to like with his cast like this is his uh this is his end game at least to this point like this is everything he was building to with a with a cast but also like everything he wants to do with storytelling and nostalgia and emotions it's like he kind of packs it all into one little backpack where it's kind of like hey here's appearance of the past and it's a very com- comedic and it's very wick paste it's very witty um and the movie almost fools you into falling in love with it you know what i mean it's kind of like you get duped into this like romance between zero and um Saoirse ronan's character and it's kind of like you don't think anything of it until you realize like this is the crux for zero's character like this is the whole point this re- this little like romance which would otherwise be a throwaway romance like it's fine like it's you know it's engaging but like because it ends the way it does it 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 motivates zero's character the way it does so this is in a way wes's most nostalgic but also his most like emotionally poignant film for me at least because it's like up until now he's had incredible things to say about characters and remorse and regret and tragedy and falling in love in their own way and yet in this way he's because he's telling it from a past era he's showing a reflection of how characters get old and they lose things and they die. And it's kind of like, there's that bleakness you and I were talking about that. It's just, it's very kind of cutthroat. It's, and this movie does it in a heartwarming way, which is deceiving because you think you're watching a comedy and then it kind of ends and you're like, now I feel very upset. Like I watch this and I'm emotional about it. And I'm like, man, I like get so attached to these characters. I don't want to lose them very differently in a way that I feel with his prior films. I don't want to feel like I'm, that the characters can be washed away so easily, but that's also just how it is. And that's what I was tying into the theme of death and the pulling the rug from under you. It's like, sometimes it's just the way it is. And it's a harsh theme, but like he does it in an elegant way. And so like, I can't really put this movie into words. It's like, it's almost like his magnum opus for multiple reasons, but more so because it just hits you on levels that like you don't ex- anticipate watching it. It's a comedy, yeah. but it's also sad and it's very moving. And it's just, it makes me feel things I have not felt in his other films. But anyway. The only, your- um, I'm just gonna add one thing and then we'll get to the pick of the week. I just wanted to say like, you 
you know, there's the new argument that people give about like, oh, with a TV show, you get so much more time to get to know characters. Sure. But this movie was an hour, 40 minutes, and I feel like I know these characters. This is oh, yeah. the kind of movie where I can come back on someone and say like, I got an hour and 40 minutes of Gustav, and like, I feel like I know that character, but I'd like more time with him. Sure. But like, you know, you don't, I got, you don't he, need more time with him. Yeah. I got the perfect amount of story with this man. Uh, anyway. So Josh, tell me what's your pick of the week. Um, so Steven, my pick of the week is going to be director Jonathan Lynn's 1985 clue. Um, it is not quite a, uh, in theme with what with with the Grand Budapest Hotel, but at the same time, like sticking a bunch of like quirky characters in a uh, dark situation together, but creating comedy out of it. Um, I could not help but retreat back to Clue in certain ways. Um, Tim Curry as the butler, uh, in his own elegant kind of fancy way. That's funny. It reminded me a little of. Um, Gustav. Uh, Gustav in his own way, but also the characters are very colorful. They, you can't really trust all of them. Um, everyone's kind of got their own motive. It's sure, it's a completely different kind of movie, but like I don't know why my mind came back to Clue a lot of times, and I think it's an important kind of movie because what other movie based off of a board game can you really recommend, aside from Battleship, of course, it's really a real masterpiece, um, that really kind of hits home in its own comedic kind of way. Um, every now and again, I'll come back to Clue, and I'm just, um, I'm kind of flabbergasted with how well it works as a comedy. Uh, it's way funnier than you'd expect. Um, and for it being a murder mystery, it's kind of like, it's its own satire. It never takes itself seriously, and it never loses sight of what it wants to do as a comedy based off of a board game. I mean, every character is incredibly colorful and well-written, um, much like Grand Budapest. Um, and so, I just feel like it's for me. That's very in sync for what we're talking about. But good choice, good choice. Thank you. I actually showed that movie to a friend within the past like couple of years, and he loved it. I was like, "That's good." It's, it's, it's underrated. It's, yeah, I, it's underrated. Movies, I mean, it's got a following, but it's it's yeah, no, it's like a cult movie. But I'm like happy to show people that cult. It's it's very funny. Everything about it's great, and I love the alternate endings. I mean, it's just it's got its own quirky. Uh, personality to it. I I'm love at, it. Uh, my pick of the week is out. Strangely, another quirky, uh, sadistic movie from the '80s. Uh, I'm going with Little Shop of Horrors. Oh my god! The Frank Oz 1986 movie starring Frank, uh, um, Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis and it's... Steve Martin and our guy Bill Murray is in the movie for a quick cameo. My man. He. His character in the movie is actually hilarious. He's a guy who loves pain and goes to the dentist for it. <laughs> it's, a, it's amazing. Um, I recently watched the documentary on Disney Plus, Howard. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. But it's about Howard Ashman, the writer of the music for Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, well, part of Aladdin, and uh, Little Mermaid. He, it's also a story of his AIDS. Uh, back in the early 90s when it was a death sentence. But it's the documentary is good, but it put me in the mood to watch something he did. And I rewatched Little Shop of Horrors the other night, and it's zany, it's crazy, but it's so much fun. Like, I love that movie. 
it's the, pu- it's the laughing puppetry. at itself. Oh my god! Which is why it's so good, you know. The I, I was. It's funny. The other night, uh, the other night I was. Rob and I were just drinking and having a night to ourselves, as we often do. And I, I was. I don't know. Turned her and said, "Feed me." Feed me, and uh, I was just in a musical mood, and I was just putting on different snippets on YouTube from different musicals, and I came across Little Shop Horrors when they're doing the feed me bit, and it, I'm enamored. I mean, I literally, I'm, I can't describe to you how floored I get looking at that puppet and how good it is. Like, I don't know how many people are involved in it, but like the way the mouth moves, like it's, it's, it's not cheesy. It's not cheap. Like he literally looks like a, a a plant singing those words. It's incredible how they, and it just makes me, it makes me, it makes me glad that it came out when it did, because you know, if that movie came out today, it would just be a CGI plant and you know, oh, get, whatever, get whatever special effects you can to make it look good. But I, again, you can't beat the puppetry. You can't beat the practical effects. Well, Frank Oz, the director is Yoda. Like, yeah, of course. He he's, he's the appreciation he's for puppets. He he's is Piggy. the puppet. He knows the puppets. He's the puppet man. And that movie, I mean, it, it utilizes it perfectly. His filmography is every is very interesting. Actually, his directing material. It's wild. It's wild. But uh, that's my pick of the week. We could put on the market, man. I I love downtown. I think where you can go down. To, I've skid, I mean, it's incredible. I, for years, that was my, for years, yeah. I always said that was one of my favorite musicals. Um, a recently, lot of years, I, Josh. Speaking, <laughs> a lot of years. But um, having, uh, bringing up Clue and Tim Curry, I recently rewatched uh, Rocky Horror, and I think that might be uh, just a notch up there for me. But those are like, we need good, dark, uh, 70s, 80s uh uh prosthetic uh, you know yeah. creatures and puppets and transvestites in our musicals we've, not we've to, lost uh, not we've to lost sound like what are those people but they don't make them like they used to they don't make them like i guess ever like standing in the wall man it's like it's like oh you know it's you know we'd love to see your act oh we'd love to hate your act it's like you know it just bring us back to the good old days it's oh you two are here yeah we entered a contest we lost that's how it feels and you know what i'm not mad about it but um so this has been our episode of whose filmography is it anyway covering grand budapest hotel we'll see spoiler alert we've spoiled a lot of stuff yeah we'll see you next week well not technically see you but hopefully you'll listen to us next week when we cover wes anderson's final movie isle of dogs Thank you.